With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. We've all used Gmail now for what, 10 years? Gmail's been around for 10 years. I don't know how long. But I go back seven to 10 years in my Gmail and I'll find somebody who wrote to me who I never responded to. And I'll respond, I'll hit reply and I'll respond as if they had written to me one second ago and I'll just give a real response. And I find it's a great way to, you know, get back in touch with somebody and maybe have a new kind of fun experience. They remember it. They'll 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 be fascinated that I responded like that. So it's it's a weird way of building up a connection again with somebody and so that it's one that's memorable as opposed to, hey, just thinking about you, how are you doing? Like if someone asked me for coffee in 2007, and let's say I never replied. I'll reply back and say, sure, how's next Tuesday at two o'clock? <laughs> and it's amazing how much benefit I've gotten out of that. Like I've gotten so many great interactions have happened after that. Okay, uh, I'm doing a special podcast about what are the best one minute life hacks. Uh, I'm joined here by Steve Cohen, and and we have a few other guests who might pop up. Uh, But I just want to add first, thanks to WeWork for hosting this podcast. I'm sitting in a WeWork facility. I've never been in one. And this is like an adult Disneyland here. There's a ping pong table. There's a music studio. There's chefs. Free stuff. Yeah, there's like... You had me at free stuff. I feel like everybody is just... Are they working or are they just like having fun out here? And in my mind, I'm listening to this song by R.E.M., Shiny Happy People, because they all seem really happy. Yeah, I'm like looking out. There's like a lot of computers. They do seem like they're working hard, but then other people are having meetings. We're kind of in a glass case doing this podcast. So there's podcast studios here. Yeah. So like I'm not even ball, trying to fishbowl. I don't like WeWork's not sponsoring this podcast. No, they not. just let us yeah. sit here. But, but uh, no greater zealot than the recent convert, though. But, and uh, we're here, and it's. But here's the, here's the interesting thing. I sort of feel we everybody calls this the sharing economy, but it's really the access economy. So meaning, like like WeWork is not sharing office space. They're not like a charitable organization. You pay, and you have access to office space. But I, when I, 20 years ago, my first business, we would, we would get a 10,000 square foot office space 
and we spent a lot of money. But here you could just join a membership. You could show up at any WeWork and you have access to empty desks and meetings and conference room and podcast studios and kitchens sure. and ping pong tables. And it's like, it's like Uber. Uber doesn't share cars. It's there. Some people have access to empty seats in their cars that they want to give away and monetize. Some people want access to that those excess empty seats and Uber is really the plat the business is the platform in the middle that allows people who have excess and connects them to people who want access and they handle all the uh uh logistics, the search, the uh payments, the customer troubles, uh everything. Airbnb. Some people have excess rooms. Other people want access to those excess rooms. And Airbnb is just, they don't own any of the rooms. Right. They just are you know, the platform in the middle that allows for search, payments, customer uh, service, and all sorts of other things. And so it seems like, and we work the same place. Yeah. Some people have access to excess office space. Other people want want that, well, we're willing to pay for that excess office space. And we works the platform in the middle. What I wonder is, when do you actually have to, at some point, we'll never have to buy anything yeah. anymore. You'll just kind of use all the things you have access to, like whether it's clothes or chefs yeah. or restaurants or office space or cars or or whatever. I was going to say a few things to that. One, I haven't heard that distinction before between access and share because I feel like access, share is kind of a euphemism. Like we have Kamal, Billiana, and Jay here. I might want to shared my coffee with them, then I'm not going to charge them. But if they want access to my coffee, they're going to have to pay, you know? So no, I but think there are companies, like yeah. speaking of food and beverages, there are companies, um, and it's a little bit harder, but let's say, or there, where there's like Seamless or Grubhub, where there's all these restaurants uh, with excess food. Yes, yes. And there's, or excess capacity to make food. There's people like me who want to sit at home and not yeah. go out to eat. And then Seam Grubhub is the platform in the middle that allows me to search, allows me to order from the best chefs around, and then they handle all the, the customer payments, the transactions, the logistics of delivery, uh, uh, customer service again. And again, it's not like I ever have to cook. I can just get access sure. to the best meals made by the best chefs. Well, the other thing I was going to say being at WeWork that I remember when it was really starting to explode and it keeps doing a lot better we're told like we're in one of 50 in new york city that i thought was instructive was they took what other people might have looked at as a real estate company and they made it seem like a lifestyle and it was just before the podcast you were talking about why you invest in stuff because how it makes you feel or the perceived value and that's similar to here you have a good feeling about being here it's not just a kind of pedestrian office space it's a cool environment. It's inspiring. By the way, that's not why I invest in something. This might be why I buy something. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so investing is yeah. a completely different thing. Yeah, I know. You and let's, Kamal let's not, forgot more than I know. Let's so, not uh, so I, confuse I, the two. I speak humbly. So, but, yes. but, but um, so here, here, before we get into the best one minute life hacks, here's, here's the idea that just came to me. Um, considering that we live in this access economy and more and more things, uh, we're just going to have uh, easier access to, as opposed to a need to buy. It used to be in order to live in a house, you had to buy a house, then you could rent, then you could Airbnb. Same thing with cars. If you wanted an SUV, you had to buy it, then you could rent it. Then you could, now I can just get an SUV anytime I want. I don't have to spend a hundred thousand dollars to get an SUV. 
uh, I can just drive one all over the city using Uber for 20 bucks. But here's the idea of the day. Let's create, or any of the listeners can create, because I'm not going to do it, create access in a box, access economy in a box. So it's off, it's, it's, it's software that you could just, you know, get on the web or it could be in the cloud or whatever. And you can just fill in, um, you, you fill in the, the software is basically the platform in the middle, which handles search, posting, payment, logistics, customer service, and the person who has the access and economy, uh, access economy in a box software can put in whatever category it is, like babysitters. So, oh, so yeah. uh, babysitters and parents. So now I'm a parent. The software would specify I'm going to upload the age of my kid, any issues, where I live. Then it'll show me all the babysitters, potential babysitters in the area who are available. A babysitter. This is just an example of a use. I don't know if this is a good use or not. It could be nurse. You know, you create babysitting in a box. You create nurses in a box. You could create whatever. But access economy in a box, you kind of generalize the basic things in the Uber platform, the Airbnb platform, uh, the WeWork platform, the Grubhub platform. And all these things are multi-billion dollar companies like Uber is going to go public for $120 billion. Well, Kamal, what do you think of this idea, access economy in a box? Uh, the software layer, you mean? Yeah. Creating that platform that's basically, it's the same platform for every one of these companies. People have tried it. They have? People tried it with apps. It didn't go anywhere. Uh, because you still need that, per that on the other side, people have to be passionate enough to like do it, uh, to build that. Uh, so rather than the software layer, just go, it's not that hard to build step-by-step step one of these. Just go off and do that. But I'm saying I don't know which business will work, like nurses and, you know, the Uber of nurses, the Uber of babysitters, the Uber of chefs. But I'm saying I want to create the platform in the middle so that anyone else can create their Uber of X company um, to kind of generalize it. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I would just say people like, you know, if you're a nurse and you want to build an Uber of X, build an Uber for nurses. You know that space. If you're a Y, build an Uber for Y, the space that you know that you, you have an unfair advantage on. So the software layer is like um, how you'll make money on that with the SaaS business. You have to have some things really take off for that thing to make money. Or maybe you have to partner with somebody who has an instant use for it. Like, yeah, um, like someone who's got that idea, who's got the network, who's got like the people there, but they don't know how to build the software part. You build it for them, but use and that. And generalize and use, it. Use, yeah, that's the way to do it. All right, on to... I wish that I was had. the idea of the day. Not all ideas are good, but it's worth having an idea, yeah. right? It's no, worth it's, it's worth considering an idea. I we, wish I had my waiter's pad to write that down. Like we just identified a, a multi-billion-dollar yeah. potential industry, and it's not unreasonable to come up with like one idea or a couple ideas that to 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 make it easier. Um, okay, best one-minute life hacks. The first one, Steve, you just mentioned uh, waiter's pads. Uh, I want this is such a great life hack for me. I've written about it before, but I want to describe why I always carry around waiter's pads. I even, let me see. I even have one in my pocket right now. So, says, for those of you who can't see, he pulled the waiter's pad out of his pocket. It, it says, guest check on it. Uh, it has date, table, guest, server, uh, and then you can have, uh, and then it has about 15 lines where you can put things. So, the reason, this is such a great hack for a lot of reasons. One is, 
It's a great place for me to put my 10 ideas a day because you can't really write a lot. You could only write bullet points. So it forces you to go from idea to idea and not spend too much time on any one idea. It makes you uh, quickly write down the most important things and not write an entire novel. But there's a couple ideas in this that makes it a hack. Uh... Uh, and by the way, I hate the word life hacks because it feel, I feel like it's overused. So I'll just, I don't know what a better word is though. That's why I, I just, what's a better word than life hack? Um, just just go with it for now. Yeah. So, so here's, <laughs> here's what happens in a meeting and here's why I like using this. Let's say I'm in a meeting with like, you know, five people and it's a board meeting or it's an investor meeting or whatever. Everyone pulls out their moleskin A, their expensive notebooks that's like $80 and they all start, they get their expensive fountain pens and dip it in ink and start <laughs> writing. And I just pull out my waiter's pad and throw it right on the table. And 100% of the time, someone will say, this, this, I don't know why they all think it's an original joke, but they all say, that this has happened 100 meetings in a row. Someone will say, I'll take fries with that burger. Like that's the joke everyone <laughs> uses. And what was that percentage of times? Hundred percent of the time. <laughs> okay. And uh, 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 you know, and then you know, so we'll joke about that. And then people will say, "Why do you have a waiter's pet?" And I'll say the thing about the bullet points, but also I'll say it cost me ten cents a pad, and I want to be frugal. So a, I've just become center of the conversation at this important meeting. B, uh, I demonstrate in a real way without bragging that I'm frugal. I demonstrate how frugal I am. And it's also quirky. So you stand out in a meeting. You always want to be the person who's a little outside of the comfort zone, the place least crowded. So, and I will also say in a restaurant, if I sit down in a restaurant and I just put the waiter's pad down next to me, the way other people put uh, phones down next to them, the waiters always treat me better. Well, and I'll say to your credit, like these aren't just things to, for you to be perceived as eccentric you do this you do this a lot like you actually had a lot of two dollar bills or other viewer eccentricities that have worked for you right so i guess people listening out there find stuff that works for you but i can see why that would work for you like i would always have a, a spiral notebook and i kind of have my own systems where i like in red i might put like a personal a guest we want to have on the show so it stands out so i can look back and do it or green i might say need to sleep more, you know, like personal stuff, blue, I might say, I just have a code, like kind of like, like, like USA Today, green is money, red is sports. I don't know who reads USA Today other than people in hotels, but like I used to read it. Um, purple is life, red is, is sports and uh, blue is life, you know, so I think, yeah, I think we've talked about this uh, before where Scott Adams always says like, you want to have a goal and a system. And if you have a system, maybe it helps you reach your goals. Well, and here's the thing about the system is that you know, I can't write a diary in, yeah. in a waiter's bed. Really, this is f so I can write 10 ideas and I try to fit them on one page. So I'm not, it forces me to not write too much. It forces me to be very concise in my thinking. Or if I'm having a podcast guest and I'm writing all the things I'm learning, it just forces me to be very concise because I, I can't fill up page after page after page. It's just a waiter's pad. It's and, small. And, and it fits in my pocket. Yeah, no, I definitely... I definitely feel like whatever system one wants to use, it has to work for you. And another thing I like about that, and, you know, they're cheap enough for you to lend me some. If they're only 10 cents a, uh, 
waiter's pad. You should give me like five or ten, and I'll borrow them. All right. Well, <laughs> I want access by to the way, your waiter's say, by, by the way, I saw... <laughs> I say the the first time I bought waiters pads, it cost. <laughs> I, I went to the Bowery yeah. and it cost me ten. I bought a hundred pads for ten dollars, but now I own a bar, so I get the yeah. waiters pads for okay. free. Um, like I like to say, if it's free, I'll take three. You know, but um, but what I was gonna say about that is I was listening to Jason Calacanis talk about when he's in meetings, he he. He eschews the idea of having a phone over there because, you know, if you have a pad, people know you're not looking at your phone. Even if you're, I a lot of times use the notes aspect of my phone. And, you know, I think there's something to be said about, hey, if you're taking notes, they know you're kind of serious or, and you're focused on them about, and you're present, right? Like, it's not and, like you're writing your see, grocery list on there. They could see, like, in a, I feel like with the more expensive notebooks, they can't necessarily see what you're doing. With the waiter's pad, yeah. they could see I'm clearly not doodling. I'm taking notes. <laughs> By the way, there's some research about the phone. If you're at a lunch and your phone is out, even if it's face down, the person will will pay, like, I don't know how they research this, but the person will basically pay 20% less attention to you that you're having lunch with if your phone is out, even with its face down. <laughs> so... It's just some. Uh, I only, I only caught eighty percent of what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, the next hack. Uh, this was told to me by an ex. Uh, I he wouldn't tell me if he was ex CIA or ex DIA, which is the Defense Intelligence Agency. But he was a member of some intelligence agency. I met him on a plane. He's actually been on this podcast, but I won't. Oh, actually, I could say who, what his name was. R. P. Eddy, who was on this podcast. Um, and it's uh, uh, a lie detection hack. And he used to be an interrogator for the Defense Department on some very high-profile cases. That, that I can't mention which cases because uh, I don't know. I don't know if he told me in confidence, but he definitely it was on it was on a red eye from California, and he was, you know, uh, drinking a little bit, <laughs> and so he's telling me these high-profile <laughs> cases. Um, but uh, uh, the the hack is if you ask someone a question. And they don't, they they answer it, but not with the direct answer. So um, if you if if you say, um, I always think in terms of relationships. But if you say, uh, you know, hi, honey, uh, where'd you go last night? And she responds, Oh, I went out with friends. Notice she didn't answer the question. So I'm not saying she's lying, but there's more to the story uh, usually, um, which you know, may or may not be true. That was just his point of doing this for like 20 years. Um, you know, and that's how with defense and when he's interrogating like potential spies, he always listens for if they're actually answering the question or slightly changing, you know, the answer to fit a different question. So I don't know if, if, if that resonates or makes sense. I definitely think so. No, I think it's instructive. Just what you said, like if they're not answering the question or they deflect you know, I, I think as you spend more and more time with somebody, you'll know if they're habitually well, evasive or, you know, passive about stuff. And, and they, they might be evasive at different levels in different ways. So you have to observe that. So that's related to his next lie detection hack that he told me, which is he would always he would always give the person he was interrogating a rolling chair and he would ask some basic questions. Like this is almost like a lie detector test. What a lie detector says. He would ask basic questions that he, he would know are truthful. Like, Hey, where do you live? How old are you? You know, what's your job title? And then he would get asked harder and harder questions. And if they start to roll away with the chair or, or use the rolling aspect of the chair a little more, he would know that they're starting to lie. 
And I, I think, you know, I thought about that, and I think it's instructive on a number of levels. Like, if you're, t- people always say, like, t- say the truth. It's easier. You won't have to remember what you said, or you, you'll always remember what you said. And if, if you're not telling the truth, it stands to reason that you're thinking of some other believable story that would suffice. So that's why there's that pause, too. Like, if you're in a chair, you're moving back so that you have more time to kind mm. of construct an alternate story. Um, you ever see the movie uh, Now You See Me with Jesse Eisenberg? I'm familiar with the film, but I have not seen it. Have you seen it, Kamal? With yeah, well, Jim Carrey and, and uh, uh, Woody Harrelson. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so Woody Harrelson plays this kind of mentalist uh, in the in, and there's one scene where <clears throat> he's trying to um, figure out uh, the name of somebody that uh, someone's having an affair with. And so he just very quickly says, you know, A, B, C, D, E. And then he's looking at the person's face for a slight change in expression. And he gets to J. He's like, J, 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 you know, uh, Janice, Janelle, you know. And he figures out the person's name because he he sees twitches. So I decided to try this technique. So uh, uh, my girlfriend said, I I bought popcorn, but I hid it from you. (laughs) And... So, so I did this exact same thing. I said really quickly, like every, you know, cabinet and drawer. And she did actually twitch on the right, on the, on a certain, when I mentioned a certain cabinet and that was the cabinet where she had the popcorn hidden. So it does sort of work if you, if you know how to, if you know a person's kind of language of expressions and twitches. Now, if someone who's a professional mentalist probably knows it very well, so you could do it with anyone. Um, but that technique does seem to work. Just look for, like, tells. Yeah. Well, you play a lot of poker, right? I'm sure some of that works with poker, too. Yeah, though, tells are are very valuable in poker. Particularly, tells are the main way in poker you make money if you're really good playing someone really bad. If you're both really good, tells could be insidious because someone can, a very good player will fake a tell. So you have to determine if someone's faking a tell or faking, faking a tell. But if you're just playing someone... Like, I remember uh, one time I was playing at a poker club. This is t- exactly 20 years ago. Norm MacDonald, the comedian, yeah. shows up. He was much younger than Norm MacDonald. And um, he, everybody wanted to sit right next to him because whoever sits to the left of the worst player at the table wins the most money because the person bets, you raise, and then everyone else goes out, and it's just <laughs> you versus that person. But Norm MacDonald had so many tells. Everyone was, and he would just go back for more and more money Everybody wanted to sit next to him. Anyway. Ideally, you want somebody who's really bad and who has a lot of money. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly true. And that works that's for the best combination. That works for poker and other gambling games like backgammon. Um, okay, N- uh, networking hack. This was told to me by a different ex. He, he again, nobody admits that they're CIA, but this person was. Uh, special forces and some intelligence agency. So he basically told me, even if you don't smoke, always carry around a pack of cigarettes. And he said, for instance, um, let's say someone you want to network with is at a restaurant and takes a smoking break. Even if you're at another table, you could now take a smoking break with them and start talking to them. Um, And you follow them outside and start a conversation. The other thing is, let's say you leave your cigarettes behind right before someone you want to network with is sitting down at a restaurant, a club, a meeting, you you can step outside, then you can go back 
and say, oh, I left my cigarettes here. And that gives you a chance to start talking. So I thought that was an interesting networking hack. Yep. Uh, unobvious. No one would suspect you of doing these things on purpose. Yeah, like when I was in news or TV, you would forget something somewhere. So you can go in and eavesdrop on somebody or, you know, and I think you, you that, would, you, yeah, yeah, you, you would do like, that. Hey, I'm sorry, what I did forgot you ever, it. Don't mean to linger around, but. What did you, you ever know. hear? No, you could hear all kinds of things. I mean, if you were at a particular place and, and you see people huddling over there and then they look at you as if you're, you know, an interloper and you're like, sorry, I just forgot my, you know, my book over there. You know, don't mean to eavesdrop, but we're meaning to eavesdrop. I'm just saying, you know, but. Do you ever see that Seinfeld, George Costanza actually leaves a tape recorder and a briefcase behind at yeah. a meeting? So, so he tried it in a very, you know, kind of the thing we always think about. Like, what if I just left? I always wonder, like, I used to have an office on 19th Street with my first business. And I always used to think I should just um, wire up the elevator because somebody meets you. They get on the elevator, and obviously they're gonna just they're gonna talk about the meeting. I thought that would be a great way to discover what how to get clients better. Like, you know, of course it would be illegal, and I'm not sure if it's illegal. It would be unethical. Um, we never did it. I should have done it because it probably would have made more money for the business. But after a meeting, now because I used to think that way, after a meeting, I never talk in the elevator because I think somebody. If I was thinking <laughs> that, I'm thinking someone else was thinking who would do it actually did it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, Do you know I, anyone who's done that? It seems like such an obvious way to make more money if you have a business and if millions of dollars are at stake. Um, just for those of you out there. So he, you're talking about like recording the elevator like afterwards? Yeah. So you could see what's going on. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know anybody who's done it. You know, I, And if they did, I don't think they'd talk about it. You know the cigarettes thing? I know someone who's actually gotten out of like really hairy situations in like middle of Africa, or Middle East, by or with police and military by just offering them cigarettes. Yeah, because cigarettes are currency in a lot of situations. No, but she was like, it humanizes you. It's like you know, if they're like being rough and like how third world militaries are, third world police is, and you just you know, you just say you know, you're just sharing a cigarette with them. All of a sudden, you're no longer just you know some suspect. You're a human being offering them a cigarette. Yeah, it's literally got her out of some great, some pretty hairy stuff. And they always, they always tell people who are about to go to jail, uh, make sure you have a good access to lots of cigarettes. Yeah, thankfully none of us are going to jail anytime soon. But Nothing I personally, I personally carry a lot of gum. You know, I like gum. I like different flavors, and um, that could serve a similar purpose. Now, people don't habitually go outside and have a gum break. But, like, it's nice to give a piece of gum to people, you know, when you see him. I mean, no, there are different <laughs> ways you could offer. If, if you're in Canada, you could have marijuana. So, so like, this is um, right? this next hack, and we're kind of just churning through these. Uh, if anyone has any questions, post them on Twitter and we'll describe more. But um, this next one is... Uh, I call it an interview or speaking hack. So not an interview like a podcast interview, but like if you're doing a a, a job interview um, or if you're doing public speaking. So if you're doing a job interview, uh, you say something like, um, I'm, I'm sure all the others you've interviewed before me were great, uh, but, and then you start your interview. Or if you're doing public speaking, 
you know, let's give a hand for all the others who came before me. You know, everyone gives a hand. And this is, this is a, actually a cognitive bias. It's called choice ambiguity bias. And if you kind of lump in a whole group of people as some mysterious other, then the brain of the person you're talking to has a hard time all of a sudden remembering who they spoke to because they're now in this big group called the other. And uh, it's a very powerful technique to make your talk stand out or your interview stand out. And I've, I've used this very effectively and it works. Uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know why it works. It, it, it just creates kind of an out group. Uh, and then the in group is you and the audience or you and the person you're, uh, uh, interviewing with, you know, now they, they take, they yeah. treat you in a different way than this. And everybody else feels ambiguous now. Once you do that. I think that, I think that's a great thing. And, um, Unless you're the first speaker, <laughs> you know, you know, well, maybe, maybe then you can say, give a hand for, I, cause I, cause I've, yeah. I've thought about this. I always try to be the last speaker at a conference sure. so I can say this, but I, but if you're the first speaker, you could find other ways to do it. Like, you know, I'm sure everyone coming ahead of me is going to say this, let's, oh, you smart. know, that's not such a bad thing for them to say, but I just want to say these things. So again, you throw them in a group uh, with a very generic thing that they can and say. I remember there was uh, Howard Bragman wrote a book about PR, and he was a very successful public relations person. And he said, I have these clients who said, like, I just feel I'm a blonde, interchangeable anchor and, you know, this attractive blonde. And, and he said, that's the worst thing you really want to do is be interchangeable. You want to be unique in your own way. So by, by, by emphasizing that these other people are others, you know, then you are, you're distinguishing yourself right away. I, I don't quite understand why it's a cognitive bias. Like other cognitive biases, like confirmation bias, I could understand. So confirmation bias is, uh, I believe in some political issue. And then your brain just starts to look for examples of where you're right because it's invested time into thinking you're right. So it wants to find more ways to prove you're right. So I understand how that cognitive yeah. bias works. I really don't understand why this bias works, but, but it does. Well, it's kind of like the rapper Ice Cube. Not that there's a Dr. Ice Cube or a dentist, Ice Cube <laughs> or accountant, but the, where the rapper, he, I, exactly, rapper, comma, the, Ice of Cube. All the, of all the Ice Cubes out there, this one's a rapper. <laughs> and he said, there's a lot of you and one of me, you know, and that's essentially what you're saying, right? Yeah, there's yeah. There's a lot of you other speakers out there. There's one James Altucher with his waiter's pad and two dollar bills. Oh, oh, and so I even mentioned actually in this in in the notes to this. Um, this is related to recency bias, where you try to be the last person interviewed or the last person to speak on the agenda because people people in any situation remember two things. They they remember the peak moment of emotional intensity. So if someone goes on stage and says something completely outrageous, you'll remember that, but they also remember, so that's, there's some other bias there, but, uh, they also always remember the most recent. And, uh, so that, that helps as well. So I don't know how you can always arrange that, but, um, if you combine that with ch this choice ambiguity bias, then, um, by the way, the way I found out about this is I was speaking at, uh, an event and, uh, I asked, uh, I was very nervous and a professor, I asked a professor of behavioral psychology, what should I do? And he's the one who told me about this, these biases and, and see if you can be the last. And, uh, and I remember I was the second to last, the last person to speak at this conference was Tim Ferriss. 
And so uh, the way I approached it was when I went up on the stage, I said, well, uh, I am the last uh, speaker before Tim Ferriss. Give it up to all the other pre-Tim Ferriss speakers. <laughs> and now I'm standing out uh, in the, using this bias. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. 
Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. This one's a, a writing hack that I'm curious if you guys use, but I I almost always use it. I use it like 90% of the time, even being, and by the way, before I say the hack, even being aware of this hack while I'm writing doesn't matter. I still use this hack and it makes my writing better. So the hack is you write something and whatever it is you wrote, remove the first paragraph and the last paragraph. And it'll be, it'll be your, your writing will have more impact. And so it's interesting, even being aware of that while I'm writing the first paragraph and the last paragraph, doesn't matter. Still removing the first and the last paragraphs tend to make the writing better. And I think it's because when you're writing the first paragraph, you don't really know yet how the piece is going to shape up. So you're a little more nervous uh, writing it. And so it's it's not as strong. And the last one, you're trying to kind of find some nifty, almost artificial way of having a, a conclusion. But if you remove the first and the last, it's like, it reads now as if you dove right into the story, right into the most emotional parts of the story. And if you conclude uh, without the last paragraph, there's no more nifty summary and conclusion. There's just this end. And that's usually more beautiful and poetic somehow. And it's more kind of a more real conclusion. I don't know if you've noticed that, Kamal, in your yeah, writing. You're absolutely right. Uh, especially that ending part, because ending you're trying, Cause especially when you've written something and, and, good. And beginnings you're trying. Like often people are stuck at the beginning. They get writer's block at the beginning and they're trying too hard at the ending. Yeah, yeah. You know what I find also sometimes? I'll move them. I'll like, I'll see that they actually go somewhere in, uh, somewhere else in the piece if they're really good. But, so I don't get, but they, but you're, especially the ending. 
That ending part, yeah. And and I always try, like, I'll write anything and just even to see, I'll just cut out the first and the last and then read it over. And almost every single time yeah. it's better, even though I'm aware of this hack. Yeah, nine time, times out of ten, I'd say that work. And you are very econ- economical with your writing, right? Like, yeah. I, I've heard both of you talk about how some people pad their writing with a lot of extraneous ver- verbiage that, and again, it seems ironic coming from me talking about extraneous verbiage, but I, but, but that they don't really need, right? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from actually, I don't know what it is, insecurity, or you feel like you have to overexplain or whatever, but, you know, economy of words is the, I think is the purest form of writing. Yeah, I mean, I another writing hack that I do, um, which I've never really, maybe I've written about it once, but I, I've, again, this one I call a hack because it's almost like a trick to easily make your right. It almost, I, I think of hack as hacks as things that require no work, but make your life a little better. This next thing requires a little bit of work, but whenever I write a first draft of something, I try to make the second draft 30% less, 30% fewer words. And, uh, uh, that tends to work for me as well. Like I really try hard to, to scrub out 30% of the words. Yeah, the second draft should be a lot leaner than the first draft. The yeah. first draft, you're just basically vomiting over the page. Yeah, and sometimes there's a temp- temptation, oh, I forgot to write this, I forgot to write that, but then I, I try to, again, make at least the final draft 30% less than the than the first draft, and that, that tends to work really well because uh, people get bored now if they read for too long. Yeah, Love Yourself was like 90% less than what the original drafts were. Well, your book, Love Yourself, taught me a lot about book writing in general in today's world. We're bo- we've always been told by mainstream publishers, hey, don't submit a book until it's 65,000 words. But in, in the day and age where bookstores are disappearing, publishers can't even get books into bookstores anymore. I mean, bookstores are, are much more selective. And, you know, Amazon with CreateSpace and Kindle and so on, you can it's much easier to self-publish. The definition of a book is no longer 65,000 words. Love Yourself, I think, was 8,000 words. Correct. It was a best-selling book, and it's 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 nobody says, "Oh, that was just a long article." So it's a book, and people view it as a book. Like the definition of a book has changed, and you taught me that, and I still wish I could follow that advice and write an eight thousand word book, because then I'd write like a book every other day or so, probably a boring book, but uh, 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 it's it's interesting. I just think sometimes you know, in the podcast, we get a lot of authors and some. I'm less impressed with than others because I think, as the old Mark Twain adage said, this letter would be shorter if I had more time. And I think some authors make you do a lot of work that they should be doing the work. You know, it takes work to economize and to get rid of stuff that that you don't need there. And so I think you do, both of you, you're very economical when you write and every word matters, and I think that's the way it should be. Well, it, it, you know, there's a, a a Facebook group called Writers and Rant, uh, or Write and Rant, which I don't know. Are you a member of that Facebook group? Does it sound like one I would want to join? <laughs> but you, you you were funny because uh, Tucker Max just mentioned you in a comment this morning oh, yeah? on on that group. But somebody asked the question, um, how many words should a business book be? And uh, there was a there was like a hundred responses. Um, you know, people were saying 60,000 words, 65,000 words. Ryan Holiday, of course, being one of the smartest people around, said, um, you know, write how many words you need. <laughs> and that's and no more, no less. And um, t- 
Tucker said uh, different, write as few words as possible and use your book as an example. And I responded, um, don't write a, a business book. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's sick. probably the best advice. Because I'm just <laughs> sick of like every business book, they're just using it to get speaking gigs and consulting gigs. I don't need another book like, oh, how to be a leader, how to have great habits, how to, uh, uh, you know, now in some cases, it's not a business book. Like I appreciate Jocko Willings, the dichotomy of leadership, you know, and so on. He's coming at it from a very different point of view, but just somebody who studies academic research and then spits it out into a, a, a highly illuminated book. detail too. That's what kills me <laughs> where it's every single thing you ever wanted to know about that. And they're trying to prove their scholarship. And I, I don't get I a lot it. out of it. I don't remember a lot. Which out is of why it. we avoid, yeah. We, yeah. we avoid writers as opposed to the people who are experiencers, not just people who are, uh, uh, you know, spitting out academic research. Now, there's a couple of uh, uh, counterexamples like, you know, Yuval Harari wrote Sapiens, obviously did research on the history of the human species and wrote a fascinating book. So I think the best the best books like that are highly curated uh, examples of lots of research, but not just spitting out scientific studies and, 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 and just so they can get consulting gigs. Like I just, and that's like the main style of book in the, in the business book section. You know, I had someone recently DM me on Twitter and she said she just finished the first draft of a, of a book. And she, you know, she had actually listened to her interview with you and I, where she read, where I said that rebirth, I wrote at least eight drafts and she's like, I can't even imagine doing it. So she said, how many drafts do I need to do before it's ready to go? And, you know, I, th I was thinking about it because there's no specific answer. Right. I'm like, so here's the answer. You have to know who you're writing for. If you're writing for yourself, vomit all the page and publish. Done. It's out of your system. Done. But if you're writing for a reader, then you just got to go at it and go at it and hammer and chisel and chisel until it's the best you could have put out there. Then you put it out there. Yeah. You know, and I, so you got to know who you're writing for. And I think, I think eight drafts, and again, there's no specific number that's the answer. I mean, what is it? Uh, Old Man in the Sea might have had 100 drafts. Who knows? But uh, I think eight drafts is probably about average, you know, for a good book. Uh, and first draft is probably about average for a bad book. <laughs> um, first three drafts are... You, mean, you know, and, and advice Stephen Dubner once gave me, which he got from the um, a book by William Zinser, who writes a lot about how to be a great nonfiction writer. Uh, but Stephen Dubner, who wrote who co-wrote Freakonomics, he suggested to me and what he told me what he does, which is after each draft, he reads the entire thing out loud and whatever makes yeah. him feel cringeworthy, he knows he should take out. And so that's a good technique. Yeah, that's one of the techniques I use. I read out loud, but that's a later draft. Then I also do another one where I print out and then I read it. It, it reads different on paper than it does on screen. And it like, yeah. every like a different medium, it reads differently, and like it, but the ear, but ultimately the ear knows that last before you hit the final draft, that last draft you have to hear it to your ear, and every time you stumble when you're reading, you got to fix something there. You, you just gave me an idea, which I use in other areas of my life, but maybe I should also use it for writing. Not only should you read it, but maybe you should take a video of yourself reading it and then watch that video. Wow! Because when you're reading it. You're hearing something differently than when you watch yourself reading it. So Steve yeah. had recently arranged for me to audition for a serious play. 
and they had the producer was there. Uh, they had serious cast members who were the readers for me. So I read, I had to memorize lines and I, and I auditioned and Jay, uh, our audio engineer here took, took the video. I came out of that audition thinking, man, I'm, I'm an actor. Like <laughs> I did a, such a great job. Uh, like I'm surprised they didn't put me on the main stage immediately. <laughs> and then Jay sent me the video and I'm like, man, I sucked. Like I could really see how. I was different from the professionals who I was reading to. And 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 I, I've greatly improved my stand-up comedy because Jay videotapes my stand-up. Just watching sta myself doing stand-up, I'll even watch myself on mute to see how my body's moving while I'm doing stand-up. It's such a drastic improvement. I'm going to try it with writing, reading out loud, videotaping myself, reading and watching that. So that's a, a that's kind a great of... great idea. And, um, well, Kamala always says what you measure improves, right? And that's just another way of measuring it. Right. Yeah. 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 And that's a different way of measuring it. I, I think that's a good, uh, that's a good hack too, is whatever you want to improve, figure out a way to measure it. That's not quite a hack. That's a yeah, technique. Yeah. And make the measurement available in front of you on a daily basis. So you can see the pattern. I mean, we just normally like human beings will want to step up, you know, put your weight every day, like on your bathroom mirror, like, you know, just like once you start seeing the trend, you'll want it to make, get better. Yeah. And, and, and it's a skill to come up with the right metric. Like, you know, losing weight you, you is an easy measure because you see pounds, but maybe you're eating um, less calories, but maybe it's all donuts instead of vegetables. So you have to figure out kind of the right metric, which is a challenge. And, and writing, it's not necessarily, you know, the number of, you know, we, we've been talking about various metrics, like watch yourself and make sure nothing's cringeworthy. Um, other people use Amazon sales ranks, which is not a bad metric, but it might not be perfect either. So you always want to think about what the right, metric is um two more two more hacks and i think this is going to end up to be a, there's going to be a part two but this one i call uh the email hack i've written about this before but i i do this i don't do this every day but i probably do this a couple times a week um i did this yesterday actually uh uh fine go we've all used gmail now for what 10 years gmail's been around for 10 years i don't know how long but i go back seven to 10 years in my Gmail and I'll find somebody who wrote to me who I never responded to and I'll respond, I'll hit reply and I'll respond as if they had written to me one second ago and I'll just give a real response as if they had written to me a second ago. And you, I find it's a great way to, you know, get back in touch with somebody and maybe have a new kind of fun experience they remember it they'll 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 be fascinated <laughs> that i responded like that so it's it's a weird way of building up a connection again with somebody and so that's one that's memorable as opposed to hey just thinking about you how are you doing like if someone asked me for coffee in 2007 i'll reply reply back and say let's say i never replied i'll reply back and say sure how's next tuesday at two o'clock and yeah. It's amazing how much benefit I've gotten out of that. Like I've gotten so much, so many great interactions have happened after that. Um, yesterday, I'm trying to think how I can describe the example. It was someone who actually hadn't gotten in touch, who wrote me two years ago. I hadn't replied. And um, she was asking for a favor for her brother. And I replied, um, uh, sure. Send over his resume. And, uh, she was like, 
whoa. And we just started talking and she ended up giving me advice about something that was very useful. And, and you, it magnifies the intensity of the interaction when you do it that way. And people respond accordingly because it's so, because of that, that heightened intensity. So I find that hack really works and it's fun and it's funny. Yeah. I was going to say you wouldn't have your website without that. All right. So, so the, the first time I did this was, it was like 2009 or 2010 in 2003, a reader of mine wrote me, he knew it was my birthday. He wrote me and said, Hey, I bought you a birthday gift. I bought jamesaltucher.com. And I thought to myself, oh, I'm never going to write my own blog on jamesaldershow.com. I don't need it. So I never responded to him. And so in 2009, I, I hit reply on that one. And I said, okay, that's great. Thank you so much. I'll take it. And uh, so, <laughs> so, so it was like a six-year difference. And he wrote back and he's like, whoa, no one ever took that long to respond to me. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'll, I'll tell you, he became a good friend. And A, he still had my... He kept wow. paying for it. He had my uh, website still. Wow. So I, I now have jamesaltucher.com as a result. And that was in 2009. He wrote me yesterday wow. because he wanted to pitch an idea for a podcast. He had a friend who bought a domain name for practically nothing and then just sold it last week for a million dollars. And he wanted to maybe describe the story on the podcast. So it was one I was going to forward to you. Yeah, to, I think it's see. great. Yeah, <laughs> and I'll respond to you five years from now and say, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> So uh, I was I was going to give you a couple of email hacks that I learned. I, I just think on the subject line sometimes when people read it, like I remember when I left CBS after 10 years, I didn't say moving on or, you know, I just said thank you, you know, and people are more inclined to read some if you say thank you and you're grateful rather than self-absorbed and hey, moving on to greener pastures, you know, too bad, so sad. You know, there's a way I think <laughs> – so when I'm dealing with people, I'm mindful of the words you use. Like, oh my God, that's such a great hack. Like, cause yeah. you always see people moving on and saying, Hey, I've had such a great time here. I've decided to make a change. And you know, it's yeah. all about yeah, them. Yeah. And instead of saying the thank you. Like you, Madonna's tribute to Aretha Franklin. Like, e <laughs> Sorry, Madonna. Even like, when you're lot. writing like an autobiography, you should still have the agenda of the readers in mind, even though it's a book about you. Yeah. Um, like I think when you wrote Love Yourself uh, or when I wrote Choose Yourself or when we do these podcasts, yeah. uh, it's always with the listener or the reader in mind, even though you're writing about yourself or doing a podcast with a guest and, and so on. So so that's a, a great addition to my hack is to, to make sure yeah, their agenda. Yeah, there's that. And I'm always just careful about the words you use. And again, I'm I'm always very mindful of not you know, handling people or manipulating people. I just think it helps. It makes me better in how I do things. If somebody's running late, I try not to say no problem. I'll say, sure. Great. Can't wait to see you. You know, it's just, it's just how we use our language. And I think it's important, you know? So, so, uh, I almost wish we could dive into more of these, but now we've been going for 40 minutes and I have to wrap up one. soon, but, uh, we'll do a part two. And um, the the last one I want to do is the one second happiness hack. And because it's hard to be happy, so it's hard to make this a hack. But someone told me an equation once. They made it like a mathematical equation. Happiness equals reality over expectations. So, uh, and the example my friend told me was um, like, imagine you're trying to lose weight. Uh, 
So your weight might be, I don't know, 200 and you would like to be 150. I'm making up numbers. So the reality is 150, uh, sorry, the reality is 200 pounds and the reality can only change slowly, but you're, and you want to be 150 and you think you're going to be happy at 150. So that's your, so, so, so you're not going to be, because reality changes slowly, uh, uh, and your expectations is 150, uh, it's going to be a long time before your happiness is a hundred percent. So right now at 200 over 150, or maybe I'm reversing it. Am I reversing it? Maybe I'm reversing. Maybe it's expectations. Another way to look at it is I've heard people talk about how your unhappiness equals like your expectation minus reality. Yeah. So expectations have millions of dollars and you're making $5 an hour you know, then you're that unhappy. Right. So, so if you're, if you're, if your expectations go down, if you say, oh, I could be happy at 200 pounds, you could change that in a second. And instead of having to wait until you're 150, where you still might not be happy anyway, if you, it's all, happiness becomes all about expectations because reality is slow to move, but expectations you can change in a second. Like you could say, oh, if I was married, I'd be happy. But if you learn how to be happy where you are right now, or if your expectations are, look, I could be happy going to a movie tonight, then suddenly your expectations change. You're happy and being happy might actually help you get meet the person in your life or lose the weight or whatever. So I always think of whenever I think, oh, I'm unhappy. I always think of what expectation is not, is not being where, where are my reality and my expectations differing and how can I change my expectations? Cause, cause you always can, right? It's all relative. Like you're not in solitary confinement in jail for the rest of your life. Like expectations can always change. Well, another way that I look at it that's helped me quite a bit is just to really just focus on, you know, your process rather than the outcome and just to be very process oriented. And I think if one can do that, then they're a lot better off, you know, and, and just, in the case of weight loss to say, okay, I'll feel good about myself if I could only eat 2000 cal- calories rather than if I have some external goal. Well, I'll uh, feel good about myself if I try these five new things. And or, and Steve, how many podcast guests have we had where, I mean, process 37, just kidding. I don't know. Pro- process is greater than outcomes for almost every single one of our podcast yes, guests. Absolutely. Like take, take an author, take like your friend, Brad Meltzer, who's been on the podcast. Yeah. He, you know, the outcome that an author wants is they want their book to be published and then to be a bestseller and then more books and then maybe a movie and whatever. Brad Meltzer got rejected. He submitted his book to whatever it was, 21 publishers, and he got rejected 23 times. So yeah. <laughs> twice by two publishers who didn't know. And uh, if his if his happiness depended on the outcomes, he would have been a very miserable man all the time. But he focused on being a better and better writer, writing more books, and eventually he got books accepted. Now he's selling millions of copies of books and writing. He's living the dream life. He's writing whatever he wants and uh, uh, has a new TV show on PBS. He's yeah, we're happy. Writes comic books. Yeah, comic books coming on the podcast. I want to say January sixth or January seventh. Got a new thriller. But we see this Um, with everybody. If if like I I had a friend of mine recently. Her her TV show got uh, uh, not accepted, and instead of saying, "Okay, I'm going to work on process," like A, I'm going to become a better writer, work on making a better TV show, um, B, I'm going to 
maybe look for other studios and and other production companies. She got so depressed and felt so sorry for herself. And we learned from Amy Morin, yeah. um, um, you know, who wrote 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. The first thing a mentally strong person doesn't do is feel sorry for yourself. And maybe you could feel sorry for yourself for 10 minutes, but don't spend a week feeling sorry for yourself because an outcome you had no control over, like you never know why someone rejects you. They could have had a bad day. They could be about to get fired. They, there could be some other agenda. If you always focus on the process, you're going to succeed. This is a marathon and not a sprint. Like I, I lost all my money in 2002 or 2001, but I focused on how can I be a better investor? How can I be a better writer? How can I find more options in my life for success? If I had just depended on the outcome, I would have killed myself. Speaking of killing yourself, um, Kamal. <laughs> wow. No. Uh, with that lead in. You know, there's interesting correlation. She's great at segues. There's like the Buddha thing, you know, where people say, he said that life is suffering. I think there's a, there's a misunderstanding there. Uh, the, the nature of the mind is dissatisfaction. So even if we say, I'm going to be happy, let's say we say, I'm going to be happy when I hit, lose 50 pounds, and you get there. You'll only be happy for a certain amount of time, and then you just fall back to your set state. Right. So what we got to work on is our set state, you know, like, with, and with the process that Steve talks about, what process gives you is fulfillment. Like the act of writing itself, the act of writing a great sentence or making progress in my book is so fulfilling. Like if publishing doesn't even meet that level of fulfillment. Right. And the other thing to remember is when you start writing or you start anything that's worth doing, you're going to suck in the beginning. So, so like I see this more in kids, but like they'll play a game of tennis and they'll lose the very first time or they'll play golf and lose the first time. And they say, Oh, I suck. I should never do this again. Cause they focused kids have a tendency to focus immediately on outcome because you take a test, you either get an A or an F. And if you get an F, you give up. Um, but process, if you're, if, if you enjoy the process, you're okay with sucking for a while as you learn because you see you 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 get pleasure out of the improvement and then if you just persist and it's the whole thing if you become try to become one percent better a day even though that doesn't really mean anything like how do you become a one percent better writer it's hard to quantify but if you think in that way and you focus on process yeah, that compounds and you become 3,800% 3, better in a year and, uh, and and you'll see the difference and everyone else around you will see the difference. I agree. Like I like to say, little by little, the little becomes a lot and and I think it's made me a lot happier just focusing on the process and just getting better and better. Um, I know we're trying to wrap up. I know I'm like that kid in school who raises his hand and says, didn't no, you forget okay. to give us homework? But um, I wanted you to talk about you know, the day you first alighted upon the waiter's pad and how that changed your life because you had been going through a very bad time. Yeah. I, and and you all of a sudden, did that spur you to becoming an idea machine? or you, like? Yeah, this? so so what happened was I had, I mean, everything, I mean, it was the perfect storm. And again, everybody, you know, you know, depression and unhappiness are relative. People have had it a lot worse than me. But... I had made a company, sold a company. People know this story. I lost every single dime. I was losing my house. I couldn't sell the house because I lived right next to ground zero. So like the FBI still had quarantined the area and the smell from 9-11 was there for a good year afterwards. Like nobody wanted to buy down there. So I was just essentially going to get my house seized and, and be forced to move. And I couldn't get hired for a job because... 
I was an internet guy and the internet was bust. And I, at the time, this was, you know, almost 20 years ago, I was a failed investor. So no one was going to hire me for that. And I had no other skills. I couldn't go back to a job. Uh, and, uh, uh, I had two kids to raise. So I thought about killing myself for the life insurance policy because the kids were too young to remember me, blah, blah, blah. I've told all this story before. So again, it's, it's all relative. Um, but I, I used to take these really long walks, uh, just to, I don't know, I felt good and then it got me out of the house and it kind of got me out of my head a little bit. I would take these long walks and I was walking past Chinatown and there's this one little strip in the Bowery where you can buy restaurant supplies. And I don't know why I walked into that store and I saw this box of waiter's pads and I bought them. I don't, I don't even, I just like the design of a waiter's pad too. They like look good to me. There's sort of this nostalgic 1950s or 1940s look to a waiter's pad. There's something, there's something about waiter's pads I like. Plus I have a fetish about waitresses. So I want, I don't know. I wanted a waiter's pad. And, um, then the next day, again, I have nothing going on. I had lost all my money. I was losing everything. Um, so I would just wake up. I couldn't sleep ever. So I'd sleep four hours a night because I was depressed. And I, I took out, I would always go to a cafe and I would take a nonfiction book to learn something, a fiction book to learn to write better. And, um, a book about games because I always loved any improving at any game. And I took this time a waiter's pad with me and, um, I started writing 10 ideas a day and I'll describe the first list in a second. But after about three months, people don't realize people are like, Oh, ideas are a dime a dozen. I can come up with ideas anytime. Good ideas are really hard and maybe a dime for a dozen ideas is true, but to come up with thousands of ideas so you can find maybe one or two good ones, that's much more than a dime. And plus execution ideas are people say execution is everything. You have to have ideas on how to execute or else you'll execute poorly. So execution ideas are a subset of ideas. And so you have to be able to write down good execution ideas too. But I found that after writing 10 ideas a day for three, maybe six months, I was suddenly coming up with lots of good ideas. And this is a subject of a whole other podcast, like where it led me to it. It changed my entire life once I started coming up with good ideas. But the first list I wrote was, um, I, I wanted to write a book, uh, how to beat your friends at every game in the universe, because I was thinking a lot of times friends get together or families get together at Thanksgiving. And after the dinner, they break out board games. And at the time, board games were, were a recession proof, uh, business category like monopoly or Scrabble or chess or checkers now, because the internet, this doesn't work as much anymore. Everybody plays games on the internet or there's more where kids play different games now. Like I went into a game store the other day and chess and checkers were in the nostalgic category as opposed to the, the real categories. So I bought Boggle in the, for, for, for my kids in the nostalgic category. But anyway, I, uh, the first list I made was, um, the 10 chapters I would write uh, so it was like chess, checkers, Othello, poker, bridge, hearts, uh, monopoly, Scrabble and, and backgammon and a couple others. And then the next day was, okay, was the execution ideas. Okay. How do you get better? What are three easy ways 
to get better at Scrabble so you could beat everybody else who ha- doesn't know these three ways. So for instance, if you know the 96 two-letter words, if you know all the Q without U words, and if you know um, you know the, the, J- the four-letter words that start with J, um, you could... Uh, uh, you could be even if those first two tips, you'll beat anyone who, anyone who doesn't know that X I X U and Q I and Z A are words, you'll beat. Anyone who doesn't know that Q A T Q O P F Q A N A T is a word, you'll beat. That's all you need to know to win at Scrabble. So I I came up with the with the ideas for each chapter. Never wrote the book, because um, you don't have to. You don't have to follow up on any of these ideas. And again, within three to six months of just doing this. My ideas were so good at that point that I that I did start making money. I started two different careers, one as a hedge fund manager, the other as a professionally paid writer, just because of the ideas I was writing down in my waiter's pay, which is a whole different story of how I got to that point. But it was I wouldn't have been able to write those ideas on day one. It took me six months of every day writing down 10 ideas a day. But I will add, the one thing I never said about this was once I started writing those 10 ideas a day, I got such confidence in myself that it literally saved me from depression. I came up with ideas on how to maybe sell my house rather than get it completely seized. And in fact, I sold, I took a huge loss, but I did was able to sell the house. And just the confidence alone, I was still back and forth depressed, but the writing the 10 ideas a day was almost like an antidepressant for me. Um, and so, yeah, that's, does that answer yeah, that? very helpful, the yeah. That great. I mean, I could probably, I could, I could literally talk for an hour about all the lists I've made on the waiter's pad. Often I write posts based on the list of the day. Uh, I just wrote, my list today was $10 billion business ideas. All of them probably bad ideas, but I'm going to write a post on it just to kind of show my process. And anyway, we're going to do Thank a part you. two. Yeah. Uh, if anyone has questions about these life hacks or wants to throw out other ones, uh, tweet me at, at Jay Altucher. Uh, Steve, you're not on Twitter yet. You got to yeah, get, get to the get into, 21st century. Or follow me on Instagram. Yeah. I, I post a lot of my waiter's pad lists on Instagram. So follow me on Instagram at Altucher. And, uh, Social media, I'm coming. I'm coming for you soon. So Kamal, Kamal thanks for, for being here. Kamal, what's your handle? Uh, thank, thanks for hanging out. Uh, Beliana, thanks for visiting. Laughing. And Jay, thanks for the audio engineering. And we work again. They're they're not sponsoring this, right? They're not paying yeah. me to say this. This is a fucking amazing place. I'm and looking next, out here. Everyone's like having way, a party and working at the same time. By the way, next time we play Scrabble, Jay is a three letter word that begins with J, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. All right, thanks a lot, Steve. We're gonna do a part two on this. Yeah, and, thank you. Uh, and talk thanks. to you soon. Thank you. All right, thanks everybody. Bye. That's great. Yeah. That's a great episode. Okay, you know what? By the way, you know how to win at... Did you play checkers? Not since I was a kid. Checkers is a great game, actually. People think checkers is like a dumb chess. It's actually a really hard game to, to play. But I'll just give you one piece of advice. If Start with the corner where... There's, you have two corners on your back row. One has um, a, a, your, one of your checkers right in the corner. The other has no checkers in the corner. And you're, you have the two checkers on the surrounding the corner. Start with the side that that where you have the checker on the corner and just, you know, move. I don't know how to describe this. Move from the diagonal 
uh, starting with that corner, just move all your checkers aiming towards the other guy's corner. And that's a tip to win in checkers. <laughs> okay. Okay. And, and Monopoly, I, that's one's so hard to explain why. I'll, I'll, let me do a different one. Monopoly, do, own the orange squares. So uh, New York Ave, St. James Park Place. Place. And no, no, that's no? blue squares. Okay. Uh, Tennessee Avenue, St. James, and New York. And it, it, do whatever you can. Give, give up Park Place and Broadway, which are the blue squares. Give them up if you can get the orange squares. And I'll tell you why. Can you guess why? Um, no. The placement or like how often people end up there? Yes, how often people end up there, Just but the why? The dice roll. The dice. Well, I'll tell you why. Because what's the most common square that you're on in Monopoly, in a game of Monopoly? What square will you end up on the most in Monopoly? Okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. You'll end up in jail because there's so many ways to end up on jail. You can either roll the dice or there's two community chess cards that can get you to jail or there's the go-to-jail square that also gets you to jail. So there's four, four or five different ways to end up in jail. Now, the most common dice roll is a seven. The seven actually ends you up on a utility, but the, the utility is right in the middle of all the orange squares. So you're most likely, the property you're most likely to end up on in a game of Monopoly is the orange squares. So get the orange squares, build hotels there as fast as possible, and you'll clean up a Monopoly against your friends and family. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.